we are looking at the Apostle Paul again, because your theme is to look at the life of Christ and to be transformed by the life of Christ, all right? Transformed. Made into the image of God. What an amazing thing that God wants to transform you into the image of his son, to have his character, and one day have his resurrection body. What a joy. And so with that in mind, we're looking at the Apostle Paul because he was a man who had the amazing encounter with Christ at the Damascus Road. His life was turned upside down. He was a man who had a mind like Christ. And he called on his disciples to have the mind of Christ. And, and that's what we're looking to do, is we're going to look at, we've looked at his prayer this morning, now we're going to look at his perspective and his priorities, and you're going to see that his perspective on life and his priorities are all mingled together. You can't have his perspective and his joy if you don't have his priorities. And so tonight we look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, a joyful prisoner. Let's pray first. Father, we ask that now you would help us to reevaluate our treasure. Are we rich towards you, or are we people who have hearts that are tethered to this world? Are we loving your good things more than you? Are we eyeing not the bridegroom, but the dress? Lord, help us to see you as our greatest treasure. Help us to see the Lord Jesus as the one we want to know and go deeper and deeper with. Help us to see Christ for who he is, and may that transform our perspective and our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So there was this guy, got in some trouble, went to prison, and on his first day, he's in his cell with his new cellmate, and he heard someone in another cell yell out a number, 43, and everyone in the cell block burst into laughter, uncontrollable laughter. That was odd. A few minutes later, another prisoner yelled out another number, 75, and everyone in the cell block bursts into laughter again. 56, everyone laughs. All right, he turns to his cellmate, what is going on? I mean, what's going on here? The cellmate replied, well, we've all been in here so long together and we've told the same jokes over and over again that we've just cut to the chase and now we just, we, we call it a number, we remember the joke attached to the number, and we all just laugh together. So the new prisoner asks, wow, that's, that's funny, that's kind of cool, can I try? Sure, knock yourself out. So he picks a number, he yells out, 12. Silence, nothing. He tries again, 15, nothing. He turns to his cellmate and says, okay, what, what's going on here? His cellmate replies, I guess some guys just don't know how to tell a joke. And, and that's what we've entitled this message is a joyful prisoner. And I've applied it to this passage because it's kind of not what you would expect to hear about a prisoner. One who has joy. Not necessarily happiness, but this joy. This equilibrium, this buoyancy in his life. In our passage, a happy, joyful prisoner, that might sound like an oxymoron because you don't associate happiness or joy with incarceration. Prison is usually where happiness and joy are absent. It's where dreams go to die, they say. There's a website I saw, corrections.com. You should check it out. It's really great. It says this, most prisoners are unhappy. Many of them are unhappy all the time. Many contemplate or even attempt suicide or self-mutilation. 
the suicide rate in American prisoners is five to 15 times greater than that of the greater American population. Well, I want you to keep that in mind as you're going back through this passage with me. As we walk through it, I want you to consider that this is a letter written by a prisoner, a man in a Roman pit prisoner, in Roman prison, and yet his words are dripping with joy. It's just all over the place. Not happiness again. You know happiness. You know the distinction between happiness and joy. Happiness is tied to your circumstances. It comes and goes based on your situation. But joy is something that's always abiding, despite the circumstances, because you've placed your joy in something outside this world that can't be stolen or rust or taken away. And so that's a major theme of this book, joy, a major theme. And so we're going to ask ourselves, as we contemplate this passage here, how can a man have joy in his heart when he's shackled to guards, when his plans have been thwarted, when his freedom's restricted, and he's suffering in general? I'm going to read the passage again and think about his situation and then contrast his joy with the circumstances. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually, it's served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others do it out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does that matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, what matters is that Christ is being preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Does that sound like you? As a prisoner in Rome, he is physically bound and his ministry is severely restricted. He had plans. He had aspirations. He had visions for where the gospel would go and now he's stuck in a prison. But again, joy keeps rising up in the letter. This is a letter with four chapters, 104 verses, and the consistent theme is joy, joy, joy. See it? I mean, look at it. You see it? right here, all over the place, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether in false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. We move into chapter two, verse 17, the theme continues. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And here's the classic one. And this one is the challenging one. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord when things are good. Oh, wait, no. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. So he's a prisoner saying rejoice. Is he crazy? Is he, is he putting on a show? Or is he on to something? 
and, and we need to find out what it is. Don't you want that joy in the midst of your prisons and your trials? And so here is a great quote and an adage, if you will. Spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal your joy. What would it take to cast you into despair? This is a good diagnostic test for your Christian life. Spiritual maturity can be measured by what it would take to steal away your joy, your buoyancy. I want to uncover your treasure and your priorities tonight. Let's peel it all back and see what is your treasure. To find out why Paul is joyful and content as a prisoner, we have to follow his progressive thinking through these verses. So let, let's start walking through. In this passage, we can easily trace his perspective. I mean, this is quite a perspective. Hey, what's happened to me is actually helped to advance the gospel. Here's a guy making some lemonade out of lemons. And, and you see his perspective and you see his passion, his master passion, his priorities. And the two, again, are interrelated. Consider his passion, consider his priorities, and consider his perspective. We will note these in the face of predicament. See what a preacher does? He uses all these P words, passion, priorities, perspective, predicaments. And so it becomes clear that his greatest treasure is something outside this world because he has joy in spite of every earthly thing having been stripped away. Don't you think that's true? What his treasure is must be outside the world. So clearly, what's most important to him? Is it his freedom? He doesn't have that. He's in chains, and yet he's rejoicing. Is his master passion comfort? Which it is for most Americans, but what about my comfort? It can't be his comfort because he doesn't have that constant suffering, injustices, and yet he's rejoicing. Obviously, it's not his reputation because he just mentioned that he is all these critics. They preach Christ, but... They do it with these ill motives, hoping to stumble him up and make him look bad and, and rub some vinegar in his wounds. So it can't be that he cares a lot about what people think of him. That doesn't matter, he says. All that matters is that the gospel is running ahead. And so it can't be reputation or popularity. He rejoices even though other brothers are doing him ill. And so, in short, it's chains, crisis, and critics. Chains, crisis, critics, they can't touch his joy. In a sense, he's invincible. Wouldn't you love to be that kind of person no matter what's happening? You may not be happy. You might shed some tears, and that's okay. God gave you tear ducts for a reason. But the fact of the matter is, people notice something different in you. How can you have this peace? How can you have this equilibrium with the storm raging around you? Because his joy is grounded in something else, something more abiding, someone else, he can have joy in all circumstances. What's his passion? Where do his priorities lie? It becomes evident as he expresses his perspective in the face of predicament. Here, let's just lay it all on the table. It's Christ. That's his treasure. Christ in the gospel. The gospel because the gospel is good news about who Christ is and what he's done. And when the gospel is proclaimed and people respond to it, Christ becomes the hero and he gets the glory. One of the motives for preaching the gospel is we have concern for the lost. Also because we've been given marching orders, a great commission, 
But you know another motivation and reason for evangelism? It's so that our God will get more worshipers. It's for his namesake. So that the nations will be glad in our God. Evangelism is all about the glory of God. And, and so his master passion is the person of Christ. You're my treasure. My great ambition, Philippians 3, is to know you more. I want to know him more. I want to know the fellowship of your suffering. I want to know the power of your resurrection in my life. Everything else is no longer of value. You're of surpassing value. Knowing you, everything else is street garbage now. The master passion is Christ and the proclamation of the gospel for Christ's sake. That's where his treasure lies. Consider his joyous, joyful perspective in spite of these chains, crisis, and critics. Again, this guy's invincible. From his perspective, because he has a really big, sovereign God, adversity is actually an opportunity for God. He believes that God can take trials and adversity into his sovereign hands and he can make them into servants for God's glory and our good. Isn't that wonderful? We can consider it pure joy, brothers, when we face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith, it develops perseverance. Let perseverance have its full work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James 1, right? When you believe that God can take your trials and use them to refine you and build your character, you, you have a whole new way of approaching the trial, right? You can have joy. He has joy because... He has a big God, and he knows that God can use prison for the advancement of the gospel. And prison can result in the encouragement of the saints, he's going to say. And it results in the glory of God. And so let's, let's see how in his mind, fortune is the result of his misfortune in a sovereign God's hands. In a sovereign God's hands, misfortune becomes his fortune. Why did he have joy? Well, number one, why did he have joy? He has joy because he knows that God is using his prison, his imprisonment, to advance the gospel among pagan Rome. Even the gospel now is reaching into Caesar's household. God is amazing. God can take bad things and make good things come out of them. Paul had wanted to go to Rome as a preacher, but instead he went as a prisoner. You ever had your plans get thwarted like that? This doesn't bring him to despair, though, because what matters to him again is that these dire circumstances are, in fact, promoting the gospel. It's being preached to prison guards and to people in the palace up above. Instead of chains being a hindrance, he understands that in God's sovereign good hands, these are opportunities for the gospel to make an advancement and a step ahead. But this perspective is only possible because he's a gospel-first kind of guy. He'd be upset if it wasn't about the gospel, right? Listen, I'm okay with this because the gospel's actually being preached here. So I'm okay with the chains. Could you say that? Only if the gospel and Christ are the most important thing could you have that perspective. If Christ and the gospel are the most important thing, then you could see adversity as an opportunity. A common question asked today, you hear people ask it, hey, what's your passion? What's your passion in life? Paul had one master passion. The question might be put this way, what drives you? 
You want to find out what your treasure is? Here's another diagnostic test. Here are some questions to ask. What drives you? What gets you up in the morning? What do you always make time for? You know, we say things like, well, I just don't have time for that. But if it's your passion, you'll make time for it. What is the one thing above everything that you want? Is it a career? Is it comfort? Is it prestige? Is it money? Is it power? Everything takes a backseat to that master passion. What is it? Is it sports? Sports is a big deal in our house. My wife could care less. But for me and my boys especially, I mean, sports is how we connect. We, we love it. We have a saying in our house, though. We have to constantly remind each other of this. Remember, basketball is a terrible god. It'll let you down eventually. You're only going to be young for a little while, and hopefully you have your health, God willing. You fill in your blank. It'll be a terrible god if it replaces Christ. I, I like what Tim Keller says. He says, you know, there are a lot of good things, but if your good things become your ultimate thing, then it's become a bad thing. If good things like a family, a career, money, a position, comfort, if a good thing becomes your ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. You know you can even make ministry an idol? I've done that. Don't do that. Where I found my identity, meaning, and purpose in ministry. How are they responding to my sermons? How big is the church? Is it growing? How big is the youth group? Am I loved? Who cares? As long as Christ is preached, as long as Christ is glorified, what's your master passion? Because if it's not Christ, you will be cast into despair eventually. Everything will eventually be taken from you. You know that, right? You can't take it with you. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You can't take any of the things down here with you. They'll be stolen away. Let me encourage you to make Christ your treasure. Nothing can steal away Paul's joy because, remember chapter 1, verse 21? For me to live is Christ and to die is? That's his great motto. For me to live is to know Christ. For me to live is to glorify Christ. For me to live is, well, I'm crucified and Christ is alive in me, so it's to have him live through me. For me to live is Christ. My life is Christ. And then you take his life away, and guess what? You usher him into his treasure. To die is gain. I mean, you see what I'm saying when I say the guy is invincible? What can you do to this guy to take his joy away? If his joy is found in Christ. Do you get it? It's easy to talk about. This is not rocket science. But I'm challenged with this every day. Lord, I know I have a heart that's an idle factory. Help me to treasure you above everything else today. Put everything else under your feet. How much was the gospel and Christ on his mind? Well, you see it right here, chapter 1, verse 5. I always pray for your fellowship in the gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. It's not good advice about what you have to do. It's good news about what he's done. I always pray with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Chapter 1, verse 7, I have you in my heart, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me, the gospel. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that whatever 
has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And that's what matters, he says. Verse 16, and the latter, good guys, they do this out of love. They, they preach Christ, but uh, they do it because they know that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. That's why I'm here in prison. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's really the big overarching theme this week. We want you, we want to live in a manner that's worthy of this gospel, this good news. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And that's just chapter one. I think the gospel is important to him. In this short little epistle, the noun gospel appears nine times. And if, if you're to add up all the times in Paul's writings that he mentions the gospel, 72 times in his 13 epistles. The gospel, the advance of the gospel, his abiding passion. Listen to this. It's never more clear than in this passage, and I didn't put it up there for you, but listen to this. Romans 15, verse 20. I wonder what he's passionate about. He states clearly, his great passion is this. For it has always been my ambition it's always been my passion to preach the gospel where Christ is not known, lest I build on another man's foundation. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel. What are your ambitions? Do they serve this master passion? Glorifying God and sharing the good news with others. You know, there's one thing that you can do on earth that you can't do in heaven. I guess there are a couple, but... The one I'm thinking about is evangelize. You can do it on earth, but you can't do it in heaven. You want to go on an adventure? Step out of your comfort zone and start sharing the good news with people. It's scary and wonderful. Gospel first, the advance of the gospel. His passion is very transparent. <laughs> it keeps bubbling to the surface. And he expresses his perspective in the face of predicament. So he says chains mean the advancement of the gospel in pagan Rome. In verse 12 and 13, you see that. He says, I am chained to guards. Now, you might be thinking the guards are like, oh no, I have to go and be chained to Paul again. You might think that, that Paul was thinking, oh man, I gotta be chained to these guards all day. But I think he was probably thinking, another one, all right, come on in. Listen up, I've got something to share with you. I've got some good news. He looked at life through this perspective because it was gospel first, right? And so some of us would be complaining about this time in prison. Man, I have to be chained to these guards. Man, all my plans are messed up. God, you must not care. Where's God? That would be the wrong perspective. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, then complaining when God lets you go through trials is not the right direction to go. Do we do that, though? I do it. Going through a financial struggle, God, why are you letting this happen? God, what's going on? And you shake your fist at God. How about we look at it as, God, you're in control, and I know you're going to use this trial for your glory and my good, and Lord, what opportunity for the gospel can come out of this predicament right now? What if we thought like that? Life would be much different, and there'd be joy in your heart rather than a complaining spirit. There'd be gratitude gushing out rather than bitterness towards God. So many young people wander from God because why would a good and all-powerful God let bad things happen? 
Why would he let this happen to me? Those aren't bad questions. They're good to ask and wrestle with. We encourage those. But scripture is clear that God can take the worst thing and bring out of it the greatest thing. There's this little test case called the cross. It's the worst thing that ever happened on one level. It's the greatest injustice that ever occurred. Humanity sought to crucify the creator in human flesh. That's arguably the most wicked thing could ever happen. And yet God took the worst thing and brought salvation for the world out of it. What you meant for evil, Joseph said, God meant for good. What if you had that perspective on your trials? So for him, what an opportunity. Successive watches of, of guards chained to me, a captive audience, and I'll preach the gospel. And we know from the end of the letter that the gospel infiltrated the actual halls of Caesar. You know that some of the guards believed and others in the palace believed because Paul closes the letter. Look at chapter 4, verse 21 and 22. He says, as he closes the letter, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How do you think they heard? Because Paul was in chains in a Roman prison. Can God do great things in the midst of our trials? I'd say yes. One writer put it this way, the very chain which the Roman discipline riveted to the prisoner's arm secured to his side a hearer who would tell the story of a patient man suffering for Christ among those who the next day might even be in the attendance of Nero himself. Nero would hear about this Jew, a Roman citizen, who was just so full of joy. Nothing gets him down. I wonder what his secret is. What is it about him? What's, what is his hope? How can he face these trials like this? He seems almost invincible. And again, this is just a great illustration of how God can overrule the wicked plans of men and bring triumph out of semen tragedy. And he can bring beauty from ashes. One writer said, man has his wickedness, but God has his way. Man has his wickedness, but God has his way. What men meant for evil, God meant for good. So here's the application. I wonder, what could God do with your chains, the restrictions you're facing, the trial? What, what is it right now? What is going on right now in your life? What could God do? How could the gospel be advanced in that situation? Have you ever considered the opportunity for the gospel advance in that situation. Also, you see Paul's priorities in his perspective in another way. What is another fortune of his misfortune? His chains, apparently, he says in verse 14, his chains are actually advancing the gospel among the believers. It's inspiring boldness among the believers as they see his, his stance, his boldness for the gospel. Chains meant the gospel's advance among Christians, in verse 14. Not only did chains mean the gospel's advance among unbelievers, but it made an advance in the Christian community, emboldening these believers to stand up for Christ and share the gospel. If Christ can do that through Paul, why couldn't he do that through me? And, and most of the brothers, verse 14, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Paul's testimony in the face of persecution drove others' fear away and made them bold in the gospel. He's able to say, you know, hey, if my discomfort means that a brother is emboldened for Christ, that's all that matters to me. Praise the Lord. Because Christ is glorified and that's my master passion. Could you have that positive perspective in the face of trial? Or again, would you complain? Would you be selfish and complain? Or would you say, Lord, I pray that you'd use my struggle to help me draw near to you so that others can see you working in my life. Let my persecution embolden the brothers and sisters. Let them see that you're my priority, Lord. Have you ever heard this saying from the church historian, Tertullian? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Tertullian was addressing the Roman Empire. This was his apologetic, his defense. And he was essentially saying, the more you kill us, Christians, the more we are. And you frustrate your own purposes in killing us. Because those who see us die well wonder why we do it, how we do it. For we die like men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. We die well because our passion is Christ. And when they find out why we die well, they want to join us. So the blood of the martyrs in God's sovereign hands is the seed for the church to grow. You can't keep a good God down. The clearest example of this phenomenon of how God can use the persecution of the church to embolden other believers is the one that is near to us as an institution. The clearest example of this is it's those missionaries, those five young missionaries who years ago went to the jungles of Ecuador. And they went to the Aka Indians. Jim Elliott, you know him well, I'm sure. You've heard of Peter Fleming, the brother of Ken Fleming, who's got quite the renown at our school. We praise God for his faithfulness to our school. But these young men went to a primitive Aka tribe, a cannibalistic tribe, and they were going to put it all on the line. And what was the result of their martyrdom? They were emboldened to go and share the gospel, but by their death for Christ, they emboldened their contemporaries, their generation. Many read of their lives, the story of their martyrdom, and, and they, they took to heart the words of Jim Elliot. He said these famous words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There is no mistaking what Jim Elliot's master passion was, what his perspective was. And so that wholehearted commitment of these five young missionaries, it stoked the fire of passion among God's people in the churches, moving thousands into the mission field in those days. Now, previously timid believers began to speak the word without fear and go into to lands. They, they believed the gospel that Christ had conquered death, that he was risen, and so they were willing to take risks. What will it take to make you bold in the gospel? When is the last time you shared the gospel? Your priorities are being revealed. Finally, we see his priorities in his perspective in the face of criticism. How else does he see fortune in his misfortune? 
Well, in verses 15 through 18, he's still buoyant and full of joy, even in the face of criticism. He could care less about his reputation. I don't care what they're saying about me. They're preaching the gospel. Praise the Lord. You see where his joy is, what his treasure is. He's essentially saying what John the Baptist said. Hey, he must increase, I must decrease. They can say what they want to me. They can do whatever they want. They can preach to make my life more difficult. I don't care. Christ is being preached. You see that even critics can serve to advance the gospel. Paul wasn't loved by everyone, especially in the Christian community. Isn't that sad that often in our Christian churches, there's so much animosity towards other believers who are blessed and gifted? He had his detractors, and you should get used to that idea that if you're in the church and you're standing up for the Lord, and especially when you're leading in the church, you're going to face animosity and criticism. But it wasn't a, a why me. It, it's an astonishing attitude. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. One commentator put it this way. He said, Paul was so gospel intoxicated, so centered on getting the good news of Christ out to the lost in Rome, that his feelings and aspirations were subsumed and subject to the gospel. They bowed to the gospel. May that be our story. Our feelings and aspirations bow before Christ. One of my favorite teachers, a guy named D.A. Carson, he helps us wrap this up with some questions of application for us. What are your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To travel? To have a successful career? To retire early? To be famous? Accolades? None of these aspirations are to be despised. The question is whether these aspirations become so devouring that the Christian central aspiration is squeezed to the periphery and choked out of existence entirely. Christ is to be the blazing sun at the center of your universe, and everything else in your life is to be a little speck off in the corner that revolves around him. Don't let those little things become more important than him. Check your perspective. It will reveal to you your treasure. So is Christ the blazing sun at the center of your universe, or is he a little speck off in the corner? If he is the blazing sun at the center of your life, everything revolves around him, you will be characterized with this kind of joy in all circumstances. People will know. You'll be buoyant. You'll be invincible. There's a Texas preacher who plays it out this way. He said Christ had done such a work in Paul that he, it was like he was invincible. Paul must have been the most annoying prisoner in the world. I mean, think about this guy. You threaten him, and you say, we're going to persecute you. Praise the Lord. My great aspiration is that I might know the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection in the midst of suffering. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Well, fine. Then we're going to imprison you. Captive audience. Guards chained to me. I get to preach the gospel all day long. Praise the Lord. Thank you. No, no, you don't get it, Paul. We're going to let you live. Okay. For me to live is Christ. Woo. Awesome. And, and to be fruitful for the service of the Philippians. Okay. Well, then we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you, Paul. 
for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul, how infuriating. See what I mean by invincible? How do you touch a guy like that? You want to live a life like that? I want to live a life like that. I'm still pursuing that. Making Christ my treasure. Seeing all the idols in my life. Fight my battles every day. I don't love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't love my neighbor as myself. I'm constantly asserting myself against God and other people. Putting other things in front of them. How short-sighted. But as we saw this morning, Christ is returning soon and we must examine our lives. Make Christ be your master passion so that you can rise above the circumstances. And then people will ask you about the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Father, we're so thankful that you are worthy. We see in Psalm 96 that you're not like the gods of the people that they make and fashion. You are the great creator of the universe and you are great. You are great. You are the all-satisfying person. May we not want the plastic trinkets of this world. May we desire instead the gold of your fellowship. Lord, help us not to be so easily satisfied, but to find our, our complete joy in you so that we can be people like this. Pray in Jesus' name.